you brought a Bible with you today, how about if you open it up to the book of Acts? Starting off on a new journey this morning. Um, first of all, if you're new to New Hope, welcome. Really glad that you're here. And you chose a, a, a great Sunday to visit with us because we're launching into this new study in the book of Acts. And, and I want you to hear this, especially if you're new to church. I don't mean just new to New Hope, but n- maybe church is a new thing in your life. It's okay to not have your theology all figured out at this point. All right? It's okay to be in church a couple years and not have your theology all figured out. How many here would say they've got God all figured out? Okay. But how many here would say you've learned new things about God in the last year? It's amazing. We're surrounded by great company, aren't we? We're all in learning mode. If there's foundational things about our theology, about doctrine we need to really have down and understand, but there's things that are causing us to learn on a regular basis. I learned this week. So my journey with you is a learning experience. So I'm personally very excited to walk through the Bible with you. It's rewarding to do this. If you're new to New Hope, what our procedure or our attempt is to do is to take on one book of the Bible in the course of a year. And this particular year, we're doing the book of Acts. And it won't take the entire year. Well, maybe it will. But anyways, um, because some of you are here during Revelation and John, you know what I'm talking about. But Acts isn't that long in that sense, but it'll be a journey because you're going to discover things. Things that perhaps you've always wondered about how the Holy Spirit operates, how He acts within your life, how, how you're motivated to do things on behalf of the kingdom of God. Things that you're going to discover about God that you never knew before. What we call this is expositional teaching. Expositional teaching means we're drawing the text out to let the text speak. My personal goal in doing this is that I will understand the Word more fully so that you will understand the Word more fully. And in the midst of that, we're going to encounter God. And when you encounter God, you get to decide how you're going to respond to what you hear. Not Mark telling you what to do, but God's Spirit speaking to you about how you're to respond to what you hear Him saying. That's really consistent with how Paul was praying for a church that he was responsible for. I've been praying for you this week leading up to this and last week knowing that this was coming in a very specific way. Same way that I saw Paul praying for a church in Ephesus, an ancient city. Look with me on the screen at this church he's writing to. It's the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, he prays this way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. If you haven't been in the habit, parents, of praying for your children, and you're wondering how to pray for them, that's a great prayer. I've been praying that one for my kids since they were toddlers that we would really grasp and understand God's activity in our life. Maybe you pray for your family members or your friends that way, that we would really grasp the power of God in our life. Understand, Paul's praying for believers there. Not praying for unbelievers, he's praying for believers that they would grasp what it is to walk with God. So this word power is one you're going to have to really hunker down on through the course of our study. The, the word power that you're going to see on the screen in just a moment is the word dunamis in the Greek language. It's in your notes 
as well. But look at this word with me on the screen and the definition for it. Dunamis is the root word of the English word dynamite. It means explosive power. So every time the Holy Spirit is referred to from this point forward in the book of Acts, when you see the Holy Spirit mentioned, you want to be thinking of this dunamis power, this dynamite power, especially the word associated with the word force. Meaning we understand there is miraculous power behind what the Holy Spirit can do in our life. Now force has to have a point of origin. It has to have a starting point. It reverberates out because of momentum. So when we think of a a stick of dynamite exploding, like this word dunamis, we would say we see the effects of it, the explosive power, but something caused that explosion in the first place. It had to have a root starting point. Well, the starting point you're going to discover in the book of Acts began with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The very same force... The very same Spirit of God which was present at creation is poured out in the first century in the book of Acts and the reverberating power is still felt today in your life. Now think about this. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. The surface of the deep was covered by the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. That same Spirit shows up in Acts chapter 1 and ignites the church. Explosive, dunamis power. And I know it's felt today in 2015 because I see it in your lives. The very fact that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if indeed you are this morning and you identify yourself that way, is because of the Holy Spirit in your life. God says you can't come to me unless the Holy Spirit drew you. So the Holy Spirit is active in your life. You can't do what you just did this morning in praising Jesus' name without the activity of the Holy Spirit. Why would you want to praise someone you have no relationship with? So the Scriptures say the Holy Spirit causes you to praise. What you're about to do in opening up God's Word and studying God's Word is because of the Holy Spirit. God says you can't even understand my Word unless the Holy Spirit explains it to you. Meaning the teacher is the Holy Spirit. I just happen to be the voice or the mechanism. The teacher is who's going to be speaking to you this morning, drawing out God's Word, applying it to your life. That's the reverberating power of the Holy Spirit still working. 2,000 years later, we're seeing the explosive effect of that. But there's more to it than that. We're going to go deeper. So let's go into the practical side of Acts just to help you understand before we get to verse 1, some of the history behind it. Last year, as you know, if you were here, we studied the book of Hebrews, which is an incredibly theological book. Well, if, if Hebrews is a theological um, expression of the outworking of God, Acts is a very practical expression of the outworking of God. And you might call it a transitional book. And it transitions in this way. It allows us to see the transition from the covenant God had with Israel as His chosen people to the covenant that God made with the church as His people, His voice for a generation. It's transitional in that Jesus was on planet earth doing the work of God, and He transitioned the power and the authority over to His church to continue on the work of God. So you see it as a transitional book. We'll see it that way as we approach it. Now, Acts is a really significant book for several reasons. 
for one, we'd have great difficulty understanding the New Testament and the flowing of the church without it. Imagine if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. If you got to the end of John and you opened up the book of Romans, you'd wonder, how in the world did they get to Rome? What's going on there? We'd be missing a big piece. So Acts fills in a lot of blanks. It's a history book. If you didn't know this, the author of Acts is Luke, the same person who wrote the book of Luke. And matter of fact, it's part of a two-volume work. When he sat down to write the book of Luke, he obviously continued on by writing the book of Acts because Luke and Acts traveled around from church to church to church in the first century. Around 100 to 120 A.D., the two became separated because the book of Luke began to be associated with Matthew, Mark, and John, and it became one of the four Gospels. Acts was left to go on its own way, to stand alone because it was an independent work. So that's when they gave it the name Acts, which suggests movement or momentum. So you'll discover as you look at the top of your notes and you'll see each week when you come in here, we're calling this study Truth Momentum because truth, the source of truth, being the power of God in our lives, His Word speaking to us, and the momentum as a response to that, what do we do with that truth? So we're moving forward now into verse 1, but before we get there, I want to help you to understand how Luke wrote this. He was beginning to write to a man by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus seems to have been a person of nobility within the Roman Empire. He's referred to as most excellent Theophilus. So let me show you how he addressed him in the book of Luke. Look with me on the screen at verse 3. Verse 3 says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And if you know the book of Luke, you know from there he launches into the Christmas story. And he tells everything there is to know about Jesus within the book of Luke. From the book of Luke's ending, we find the book of Acts picking up. And so this is where I want you to join me. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. It says this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we understand after the resurrection, after Jesus came back to life, he stayed on planet earth about 40 days. And during those 40 days, he appeared and disappeared and appeared and disappeared. And the disciples apparently never knew when he was going to appear. Kind of creeped them out a few times like, wow, where'd you come from? They're in locked rooms. They've got the doors shut. The windows are shut. And Jesus appears. And nobody let him in. He's just there. Would that creep you out a little bit? It would me if you know that everybody's in the room is in the room and all of a sudden somebody's in the room that wasn't in the room. What do you do with that? Well, even if you don't express it, you're going to be thinking inside, wow, what's going on here? During this period of time when he's appearing and disappearing, he opened their minds. Scripture says this specifically, Luke 24, 45, during this period of time, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures meaning the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So using the Old Testament, he explained who he was, what he did, why things had to happen the way that they happened. Yet, even with him explaining the Scriptures, there were still things they needed to know, things they needed to understand before launching out. Because if you're going to carry the message, you've got to know the message. There must be a really accurate understanding of truth 
before we can be effective. So that's what he's doing for them. We're told specifically in verse 2, he's doing this by the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice in your notes, it says the first appearance. I, I need to complete that thought because I didn't finish the sentence there. It's, it's the first appearance of the Holy Spirit's activity in a personal way in which the Holy Spirit is being used to apply truth to an individual's life. Uh, just track with me on this. Through the entire Old Testament, whenever the, old, the Holy Spirit showed up, it was to carry out an action of God and then was retracted. So you see it at creation. Spirit's there, spirit's retracted. You see it in the lives of kings like King Saul. Spirit's there, spirit's retracted. But when you come to the New Testament, like in your life today, the Holy Spirit is not retracted, it's there and stays there. So we understand there's something remarkable going on here. Jesus, for the first time, using the Holy Spirit, He's giving orders and giving instructions to them, allowing a personal approach to be applied to their life. There had never been a personal use of the Holy Spirit up to this point. Now, verse 3 picks it up here. Let's go with me on that part. To these He also presented Himself, meaning the disciples, alive after His suffering, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The phrase 40 days is an Old Testament idiom, and it means something longer than a lunar cycle. Lunar cycle being 30 days or 31 days, based on how you use your calendar. So something longer than a lunar cycle, but before Pentecost. So we're told here, 40 days, this cycle period of time, He's appearing to them and disappearing. Now, we have in the Bible 10 accounts of Jesus appearing and disappearing during this period of time. It's just a sampling. It's a sampling of many different times when he did it. But here's what I want you to see in that verse, this Greek word, tekmerion. And tekmerion is very specific. It's a demonstrative evidence, something that Jesus did that was absolutely irrefutable. So let's just deal with the reality. Some people have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. It was true among the disciples, especially 40 days earlier before the ascension of Jesus. People wondered, is this real? Is, is this possibly Him? So we know some of the things specifically that Jesus did. He entered the room with locked doors. He sat down and ate with them. He invited them to touch His body to see that He was physically real. He talked to them directly so that they would hear his voice and he taught them as we understand. He demonstrated his wounds, put them out there and said, look at the holes in my hand so that you know that it's really me. Did you know that he built them a campfire? They're out fishing one morning, early in the morning, and he shows up on a beach and he cooks them breakfast. I don't think it was eggs and bacon because Jews don't eat ham, you know, but I'm thinking he was cooking them fish or something like that. It very specifically, we're told, he warmed up a fire and he put some fish on the coals, and then he gave them instructions about their fishing ability. Told them, you're not doing it right, guys. So there's some specific things that we know that go on here. Whatever the proofs are, they're very, very convincing because it altered the course of their life. Matter of fact, if you want to see an extensive summary of it, later today, go to 1 Corinthians 15. And there's an extensive listing there where we're told he actually appeared to 500 people at one time so that they could all see Him and there would be no doubt. Why all this work to do that? Because the confidence in Jesus' resurrection is absolutely crucial to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
The power of the Holy Spirit in your life depends upon the resurrection being very real to you. If you don't believe in a resurrected Jesus, why call yourself a Christian in the first place? It's what Jesus represented about himself. Jesus said, this is me. I am back, and I'm real, and I'm going to prove it to you. So to deny the resurrection means you've got to really check yourself about where you're at in this walk. If Jesus were dead, the church would absolutely be speechless. We'd have nothing to say. Paul said we'd be, of all people, most to be pitied. Would you agree with that? We would. We've got nothing if he's not resurrected, if it's not true. So these particular believers are chosen to be the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and they're incredibly privileged. But you're even more so. Did you know that? Jesus said you're blessed because you believe even though you haven't seen. He's talking to his disciples when he said that. Look with me up on the screen. John 20, 29. Because you have seen me, have you believed? He's talking to Thomas at that point. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. God's saying you're blessed this morning because you believe in something you've never seen You believe it because of the activity, the Holy Spirit working in your life. You've put confidence in this. So that truth of the resurrection became the primary emphasis for what these individuals are about to do. Why? Because in Israel, everyone knew that Jesus has been executed. They knew that he had been put to death. Very, very famous man. People are greatly aware of his destiny. And then they hear that he's been executed on the cross. But very, very few people knew that he had been raised. As a matter of fact, because the leaders of Israel had spread a lie, they let it be known that Jesus' body had been stolen and hidden away. And so the disciples were responsible for stealing Jesus' body, according to the leaders of Israel. So the disciples had a great deal of work before them. They had to not only prove that they saw Jesus in some way to help people understand that, but they had to refute a lie that was being spread around. There were a remarkable responsibility that they had before them. Go with me to verse 4. Gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, you heard of from Me. Verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, Just to be straight up with you, there's a lot of division in the church, and I don't mean at New Hope. There's a lot of division in the church over this phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be part of the scope of our study this morning, but we are going to get to it in future weeks so that you really understand what's being spoken of here. What is he talking about? What I want to hammer down with you on is verse 4, where it says he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Why? Because it's so easy for us in our humanness to assume we're ready to go. We want to move forward in our own capacity. No doubt these guys are fired up. They're ready to roll. they got a risen Messiah right in front of them. Doesn't it seem like a strange directive to say, hey, wait, don't rush into this. I want you to wait for something specifically. Now understand, the disciples had previously tasted the power of the Holy Spirit. You go back in the book of Matthew, and you see that they were sent out by Jesus Himself into villages and towns to talk about the kingdom of God. 
And we're told according to Scripture that the Spirit of God went with them. But then the Spirit of God didn't stay with them in that time. They had tasted it, but they didn't know what it was to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like you have today. So this is a really important point for us. All the preparation, all the experience, even the theological knowledge that you might contain within you is absolutely useless without the power of God going with you. You don't have the power of God with you, you might as well stay home. Power is the companion of truth. I put that in your notes this morning just so you remember that phrase. Power, the Holy Spirit's power is the companion of the truth of God's Word. Power is the companion of truth. They have to go arm in arm together. So here's the lesson for us in this. Do not rush into kingdom work in your life unless you're absolutely sure that the power of God's Spirit is going before you and that He's walking with you. You cannot carry out the work of God in your own strength. I've tried. It doesn't work. I know other people who have tried. It didn't work for them. You can't do it. God's Spirit has to go before you. Uh, Let me just expand for just a paragraph on the Holy Spirit. There's a promise that's repeated many, many times throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. There's a promise that God said, I will send a deliverer. Uh, We know that. We've addressed that over the last few weeks. But along with the promise of a deliverer, God said, I'm going to send a comforter. The two are going to arrive together. Let me show you the prophecy, one of them up on the screen. Ezekiel 36.25 says this, Moreover, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Something that had never happened before. People had seen the activity of God's spirit. But they'd never had the indwelling of God's Spirit. This is something completely new. God's saying there's a completeness coming. So that makes Jesus' next words in verse 5 really, really important. When He says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, 10 days to be exact specifically is when it happened for them. That means they received the Holy Spirit in a very uncommon way. Different from anyone here this morning. None of us at the point confessing Jesus as Savior, had to wait 10 days before we received the Holy Spirit. According to God's Word, at the moment that you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, He not only takes away your sins, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within you. Meaning there is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. You can't say the Holy Spirit is not active in my life. You have the Holy Spirit Matter of fact, the Bible's even more specific than what I just said. Let me show you Romans on the screen. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That black and white enough for you? God's very, very clear about that. So if you're saying you don't have the Spirit, you're not following Jesus. But if you're following Jesus, you've surrendered your life to him, you've got the Holy Spirit. Let's take it one step further. Titus 3 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly. See, you don't just have it. God dumped it on you. He poured it out upon you. So the truth is, we've got the power. We've got this dunamis. All believers have the spiritual dynamite within them. So what's the problem? 
Some people will say, well, I don't see the activity. Why is the Holy Spirit doesn't seem real in my life? We all have the dynamite. The problem is some people don't have the fuse lit. Uh, I want to talk to you about that for just a minute so you understand what I'm driving at here. What does that mean to not have the fuse lit? We all need, according to God's Word, to experience the release of the power of that Holy Spirit in our life. How does that happen? It happens when you surrender control of your life to God. Now, many of us are really good with saying, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my ticket to heaven. Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. But it's one step further to say a very, very hard thing, which is this. Jesus is my Lord. Because we like being Lord of our own life, right? I mean, I'm raising my hand right there with the rest of you. I'm, I'm the king of Krings, right? I, I like it. I like being king over my own life. And it's a hard thing to surrender control and say, Jesus is my Lord. So when we surrender lordship, when we put the flesh down, when we stop living life the way we want to, when we allow the Holy Spirit to control us, we surrender control to Him, that's when you start seeing the power of the Holy Spirit show up in your life. I can back this up from Scripture. I'll go back to the church in Ephesus where Paul is writing to his own church. Look with me again at Ephesians 3. That God, he was speaking about how he wanted God to act in their life, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. He's talking to believers, people who have the Spirit of God within them, but they need to know what it is to be strengthened with the power of the Spirit. Let me take it one step further, a verse you're very familiar with, Ephesians 3.20. It says this, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the dunamis that works within us. God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine, right? Okay, right? I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. He can. He can do all beyond that we ask or imagine. We don't see the evidence. Why don't we see that? Paul is speaking to believers here specifically saying, God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine because the power is in us. Have we allowed it to be released by surrendering control to Him? Uh, before I spend too much time on that, I want to come back to that next week. So let's move forward into verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 says this, So when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is written in the Greek language in, in, in what's known as the imperfect tense, meaning it was a past action, something that they had done before again and again and again. They'd asked it repeatedly. They asked it before Jesus was crucified. Now they're asking it after Jesus is crucified. Why? What's going on? This is a really logical question for them to ask. Here's the resurrected Messiah. He's talking to them about the kingdom of God. It's a logical conclusion for them to put the two things together to say, is, is it at this time you're going to do this? Why? Because in the Old Testament, Jews had been taught for centuries that when the Messiah arrived and when the Holy Spirit arrived, you would see the ushering in of the kingdom of God. So they're thinking politically. They know of no reason why the kingdom cannot be set up. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospels, what you're going to discover is that the disciples suffered, suffered from a problem that you and I have today. 
They suffered from short-sightedness. They put God in a box, and they misunderstood the activity of God. So let's just think about it this way. When God was on Mount Sinai with Moses, and Moses said, will you show yourself to me? God said, you can't see me and live, but I'll pass before you, and I will proclaim all my goodness. What did God say about himself? I am compassionate and long-suffering, merciful for generations. The disciples didn't understand. There were billions of people who needed to hear about Jesus. Is it at this time you're setting up your kingdom? Are you going to kick Rome out? Are you going to establish your kingdom here and take reign and rule over the earth? They didn't understand the length of God's mercy and compassion. The same God who spoke on Mount Sinai said, this is who I am, merciful and compassionate not only carried forward thousands of years into the New Testament, but is now carried forward 2,000 more years into 2015. God still being merciful and compassionate, allowing people to discover who Jesus is. That's why Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He just brings them back to reality really quickly by saying, it's not for you to know. Go with me to verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. That Jesus does not deny what they are expecting is really significant. He doesn't deny their expectation of a literal kingdom. That shows us that their understanding is correct, except for the timing. The fact of the return, the establishment of the kingdom, is absolute. So Jesus doesn't say to them, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. He just says, it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. The time is not revealed. And just as an aside, in case you're wondering, no person, no man or woman, knows or will ever know when Jesus is returning. It's going to come, as the Bible says, as a thief in the night, instantly. So when you hear individuals on television, radio, maybe on the internet, you see individuals say, I think I know the date of Jesus' return. That is totally contrary to Scripture. God says they can't know because the Father is not revealing it. Here's what we do know. We have to be ready. According to what Jesus said in Mark 13, we've got to be on the alert. But there is something we can know. He tells us in verse 8 what we can know. Verse 8 says, But, here's what you can know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I don't care how many times you've read the book of Acts in your lifetime. How many times you've studied it. Stop to think about this for just a moment. These are ordinary people. They could have been sitting in here in this auditorium with you and I. There's nothing extraordinary about them. But they're able to do extraordinary things because of the dunamis, because of the power of the Spirit. Jesus has just said something to them that would rock their world. He was killed, murdered, executed, beaten, and thrown in the ground. He has just told them By the dunamis that's coming upon you, 
you're going to go back into the exact same city where they murdered me. You're going into Jerusalem. And then when you're done there, you're going to Judea and Samaria, where they're not exactly friendly towards you. And then to the uttermost regions, which is Rome in their world, because they'd not known that. That was considered the ends of the world. So what he's letting them know is that they're going to do something that can only happen through the power of God in their life. So rather than speculating on the establishment of Christ's kingdom or the second coming, he's telling them, be prepared and focus. This work that you're about to do is going to take all your energy. So another word you need to hammer down on in the the study of the book of Acts is the word witness, because it applies to us specifically today in our world. Today in a courtroom, when you're on the witness stand, the judge is not interested in your opinion, right? Judge not interested in your opinion. The, The judge wants to know what you saw. The judge wants to know what you heard. The judge wants to know about your experience, what you know, and then ask you to repeat it to the entire courtroom, especially to the jury. That's what a judge wants. Well, a witness for Jesus is simply that. Someone who knows, who hears, and tells it. John got it. John was there that day when Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. So look at how the elderly John writes what he saw about Jesus. 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our, and our hands handled concerning the word of life, we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you. That's what a witness is. So this became the primary purpose for the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth is this morning, you are already a witness. You are. People are watching you. We watch each other. Last week, we lifted up the communion cup. We lifted up the cup, and we typically say here at New Hope, the person on your left and the person on your right, you're witnessing to them right now. You're saying, I belong. This is real in my life. See, you already are a witness because people are watching you. Here's the question. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with being a witness about the things that you know to be true? How are you doing with sharing that? Now, when he says Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria here, it's kind of the general outline for the book of Acts just to set you up. They're going to go into Jerusalem, and we're going to watch it. We're going to see those stories. And then they're going to go into Judea, and we're going to watch it. And then we're going to see them move into Rome. This is a fascinating historical narrative. Understand this sentence that Jesus just made, this one sentence by one person 2,000 years ago has altered the course of this world's history because they responded to it. You are here today because those disciples did what they were asked to do. Absolutely, one sentence by one individual stated 2,000 years ago as a mandate altered the course of world history. Now, we get a great summation here in the last two verses. Let's land this plane by watching what happened. It became a powerful motivator for the work they're about to do. Verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, 
why do you stand looking into the sky? Uh, Wouldn't you be astonished if somebody in this auditorium just lifted up all of a sudden? I I would. Kind of be creepy, but I'd be astonished too at the same time. Like, wow, I can see why they're astonished. He's lifted up while he was talking to them. He finished his statement, and he's lifted up, and they're looking on. So Jesus, with his resurrected body, which they have just seen and touched, they've talked to him, is now before them. It's so easy to picture them standing in awe, absolutely absorbed in this extraordinary event. So Luke tells us very little. He doesn't give us any detail whatsoever. I want more detail. I've always pictured this kind of like a slow motion thing. I'm not sure that's the way it was. I want to know more about what's going on. The only thing that we discover about it is actually back in the book of Luke, in Luke 24, that they were standing on the Mount of Olives. But all we get is this little paragraph here. These shocked followers are gazing intently at the departing Jesus. The Greek word that's used here is atenizo, meaning they're craning their neck, straining trying to understand what is going on. This is so weird to them. In that moment, verse 10, two men with white clothing show up and materialize next to them. And paraphrase according to Kring, this is the way I think they said it. What you doing? And there's a reason why I say it that way. You'll understand. Matter of fact, this is the way they said it, verse 10. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This is way more than curiosity. It's it's translated as a long gaze, as though looking at someone they're losing. It's used in association with a thought that some of you have experienced. You've been in a hospital room or in hospice care when somebody whom you greatly love is passing away and you're watching their face and you're gazing and you're looking longingly, and they're slipping away, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the sense of what's going on here. he's, He's gone. That's why they ask the question, why are you looking like that? Because you're not losing him. This Jesus is not going away. This question is kind of a mild rebuke. There's no fear in this departure. They're not losing Jesus. That's why the next sentence comes in. The rest of verse 11. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. The Jesus you know, He's coming back. The Jesus you know, He's gone to heaven. He's been going back to His place of glory. Jesus is returning to this place of pre-existing glory. And don't let the concept of the cloud pass you too quickly. When we're told He's coming back in the same way, every time in the Bible when you see the presence of God on planet Earth, God's physical presence, it's always associated with what's known as the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God's presence. So the silent witness here, God's Shekinah glory surrounding His Son, receiving Him up, and bringing Him back. And so His return to the Father means something very specific for you this morning. Very important to your walk with Jesus if indeed you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Look at this last verse I'm going to close with. Jesus' own words Himself, John 16. John 16, 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you, and He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin. That verse is so important to you and I. That tells me that it's not my job to convict anyone of sin. It's not your job either. You don't get to convict people of sin. God does that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Your job is to tell. We don't bring conviction. We bring truth. We don't shy away from truth. We tell it as it is, and God says exactly what He wants us to know. But it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction upon our life. So we need to be really clear as we go out the doors this morning. Luke's got a couple points here he wanted us to see in these first 11 verses. First of all, everything that we do at New Hope, all of our activity rests on these three things. It rests, number one, on Jesus' directive. Get out there and tell people about who I am. Number two, it rests on the living presence of Jesus in heaven with the Father who's watching over and caring for us. And number three, it rests on the promise of His return. Got that part down? It rests completely on His directive, get out there. It rests on His presence in heaven. And it rests on the fact that He's coming back again. Those three things. So, when you take on this week, New Hope, you do so knowing that you're in a world that Jesus greatly desires to come to know Him. That's why God is so long-suffering, waiting and waiting for us to do the work of the kingdom. And you can do this. You can. You absolutely can do this. Because His presence in heaven assures you God the Father and God the Son are watching out for you. And you walk in the power, the dunamis of the Spirit. You walk each day knowing this might be the day of His return. We don't know that it's not. It could be 500 years from now. But in the meantime, what are you going to do with it? So I want to pray with you about that because you're about to sing a song to close this service that asks you to surrender your will to God's will. You're going to be singing, will you take my spirit beyond the place that I'm comfortable? Beyond the place with borders. I want you to sing that as a song of commitment to God if you're really meaning it. But let me pray with you first. Heavenly Father, we come before You right now thanking You for the truth of Your Word. That You have revealed things through Your Word this morning to Your people. We have gathered together to study Your Word and to praise Your name. And so we would ask that You would take that and translate that into a, not only a blessing on our life, but using it, Father, for boldness in our life. So as we stand and sing right now, I ask God that this would be real. That these commitments would be honest. That these words would not be said lightly. But that we really believe what we're about to say. Use it, Father, and then send us out in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.